Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a really special treat. We have Jeffrey D. Calhoun on the podcast, best-selling author, screenwriter, podcaster. How cool is that? Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me on. This is awesome. Yeah, this is great. There's so much to talk about. I'm very excited. Let's do a short origin story sort of thing. How did you get into this? What came first, podcasting, screenwriting? Were you just born a bestseller author? Where did it all oh, come that's from? hilarious. I was born dyslexic. I stumbled into screenwriting on a bet from a friend. Ended up really falling in love with it. And when I learn something, I learn it. I dive deep into it, and I really became a student of screenwriting. I love this craft. It's how I express myself, man. I can't dance, I can't sing, but damn it, I can write you a screenplay. So I was invited to Ghana, Africa to teach screenwriting to their filmmakers there, but they didn't have a program. I had to create it. So I took everything I knew from screenwriting and running my own screen consultant and mentorship at WeFixYourScript.com, and I created a book. Well, I created a, a program for their filmmakers, but it ended up falling through. So I took that program and converted it into the Guide for Every Screenwriter, which is my book, and was just listed as the best screenwriting book of all time by the Book Authority. Well, hello. Wait a second. I got so many follow-up questions on this right now. Sure, man. What do you mean that you got into it on a bet from a friend? So a friend of mine was an editor on a a morning kids show, and uh, he wanted to get into screenwriting. So he made a bet to everybody around his vicinity, essentially, of who wants to do a screenplay, and he wanted to motivate himself. So nobody took him on, so I, I took him on and agreed to do it and learned how to do it and wrote it and fell in love with it. And famously, my wife found the script lost aside in the kitchen and uh, she ended up reading it and she really enjoyed it that's when i kind of realized that yeah this is something i love doing and i just kind of dove into that rabbit hole well thank god for your wife right yeah thank <laughs> yeah. god for every wife yeah so this is you're already past school at this point you're past all the kind of stuff you're out there in the real world at this point and your friend's <laughs> just trying to i need to bet someone but that's going to make sure that i write it so if i have a bet with someone yeah Wow! Yeah, I'm an autodidact. I didn't go to college for this. I, I don't have an MFA. I'm self-taught. And this is my thing. And you never until then had any thought about becoming a writer or doing any sort of storytelling? No, not at all. Because I was dyslexic. And I can't say it was. I mean, I, guess I am dyslexic. Elementary school, I couldn't alphabetize and I would just fail spelling tests because I didn't understand how all these kids could magically spell these words and the letters would just kind of flip around on me and they just didn't make sense. So I would steal Hostess cupcakes from my pantry and take them to school and bribe kids at recess to help me with my spelling homework. And so my mom would go grocery shopping and then like two days later she'd be like, where the hell are all the hostess cupcakes? (laughs) (laughs) I'd be working the school year. I'd be like, hey man, can you help me with the spelling homework? So eventually kind of figured out what's going on. And still to this day, like if I'm really tired or stressed out, I'll have a bad day with reading. Oh, wow. But most of that is just once they could figure it out, they could kind of guide you. It's not necessarily a problem unless, again, stressed out or tired or something. Yeah, nowadays wow. I've learned how to cope and you learn skills and eventually your, your brain starts to really kind of wrap around it. I mean, there's certain things you can do. If you, there's certain weighted fonts you can use that are like bottom weighted fonts for people with dyslexia. You can do that. But for me, I just I had to just get through it, learn it and 
And I'm good now. I'm not the fastest reader, but when I do have really bad moments of dyslexia, it's when I'm really tired. It's funny you mentioned the fonts. I was going to ask you about that because I spoke to a writer once. His focus, it's high-low, so kids, they're intellectually, they're there, but their reading level and comprehension skills are lower. And, yeah. you know, for whatever reason, and that's who his market is. He really wants them to have books to read that they shouldn't feel like they're reading kids' books. He wants them to feel like they're reading adult books, and he does. He uses some sort of font. It's heavy-weighted on the bottom and helps kind of decipher B's and D's and things like that. Makes it easier for you to read. So they actually look really cool. So, yeah, it's me. They didn't have that when I was a kid. Well, good they have it now. I spoke to someone else that I think her daughter's dyslexic. So she said audiobooks have helped her a lot because she could still get all of her stories in and she doesn't have to read as much. I'm old enough to have had a membership to Books on Tape. That was a store, I think it was a chain, and they would have books on tape. You would go there like it was a uh, like a blockbuster or video store, and you'd pay your $3, and you could rent a book on tape, and that's what I did. I did that for years. I would rent books on tape and listen to them all the time. You know, Jonathan Lickinson Siegel and you know, all kinds of great stuff. I, I'd listen on tape, and now that's obviously obviously a different time period now you've got everything on audible that you need so yeah and also going back to your origin story what was this whole thing oh and i got invited to africa what is that yeah that doesn't happen like what do you mean oh i got to go to africa (laughs) what yeah it was crazy so I gained a reputation as a script doctor and consultant. And so what what I would do is I would be brought on to films that were having trouble with their screenplay. And I would go on and I would read the script and I would be able to fix like the worst screenplays out there so that they can make them filmable. And I still do that to this day. And I I did it through my company, WeFixYourScript.com. So I started getting a reputation from that. And this film school in Ghana had, had heard of me and they reached out and they said hey are you willing to come down to Ghana and teach our film students and I was like yeah sure do you have a film program they said we do but we don't have a screenwriting program I said okay so you need me to like teach from scratch and I said yeah I said okay well let me figure out how to do it so I I took my methodology and created a really easy to understand way of doing it because I would only have a week or so to teach screenwriting so I wanted to take them through the entire process so I really broke it down with easy to use templates and samples of modern day films that everybody's seen so that they could really understand the process. It's just, it's unfortunate it fell through, so I wasn't able to go down there. And then I got invited again, and then COVID hit, so it just didn't happen. (laughs) What I had done before that, though, is I just took what I, the material I had and I traveled to different film festivals and taught seminars for the film festivals on subplots and three-act structure and scene dynamics and creating characters and what not to do in the screenplay. People would inevitably would come over and ask me if I had a book. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, I don't have a book. I should probably write one. It's just funny because these seminars got popular. I would be in the hallway waiting for the seminar to start and people would stop me in the hallway and start asking me questions and I'd have like a pre-seminar seminar in the hallway <laughs> and then we would go and then after the seminar was over I'd have a ton of follow-up questions so like people were hungry for what I was giving them so I took it and I uh, put it into the guy for every screen I it's, it's it's been very successful that's amazing everything, thank you yeah everything in uh, Africa was going to be in English you were going to be able to go and fully teach it 
Yeah, they weren't going to need any, any translation. They, they speak English over there, so it wasn't going to be an issue. I think the biggest issue I had was I had to take like malaria pills for a week beforehand. And it's like, okay, I mean, if I have to do that, people do that. So, But uh, no, it, it didn't happen. Too bad. That's no, okay. Yeah, first time I fell through, second time it's COVID. Third time's the charm? Who knows? We'll find yeah, out. <laughs> I got a sick book out of it, so it worked out. You know, the one thing I've learned is when you're presented with an opportunity, the answer is yes. Yeah. So, because you just don't know where it's going to get I Had I said no to Africa because I was too insecure or too worried about it, I would have never developed all of the material. Yeah. Um, and if I never would have developed the material, I would have never taken that material and put it into a book. If I didn't put it into a book, I've gotten letters from writers thanking me for my book because they took screenwriting classes and didn't understand what the teacher was saying. I've had students with MFAs, directors, work with me as a mentor because they didn't really learn screenwriting in film school, which to me is crazy, but that's very common. Tens of thousand dollars in debt, they still struggle to write a screenplay. So I end up consulting with them, teaching them how to write a script, even though they've got an MFA. It really is something that people need to learn. And luckily, the way I teach it simplifies it for them. Just a technical question. Are you allowed to speak about any of the scripts that you doctor? Do you have to sign a uh, non-disclosure for that kind of stuff? I have a couple of NDAs. I just finished one for somebody in Serbia that was in rough shape. And they really helped that one. I can't, I can't talk about it. I have some IMDB credits. It's really not hard to find out stuff I've worked on. You can do a little homework there. But yeah, I've been brought on to a project that had over seven writers work on it. And the thing was a mess. And then I came in and I cleaned it up. I got brought on to a project that couldn't figure out what it was trying to say. So I came in and I thematically did a pass through it. And then they were able to finish it up and put it into distribution. So, I mean, that's that's kind of what I've got going on. I have a film that I wrote that I was put on assignment for. This wasn't fixed. This is one that I actually got the honor of writing the script for called Finding Nicole. And it looks like it's going into production this summer. And that one is based on a true life story of a woman whose husband tried killing her and her kid and after they escaped he hired an assassin from prison so i got brought on to that project from scratch an incredible story so difficult to write because there was so much to work into it but i mean i was so happy to do it because I knew I could do it. Yeah. I wasn't convinced the director would be able to find somebody else who could because it's that special of a story. And so I was able to come on to it. And one of the producers told me they were moved to tears. And Nicole, that it was based off of, loved this script. So, and the director said that he's never gotten a draft so close to his vision before. So, I mean, it was really successful. So I'm really looking forward to that one shooting because they, they just signed John Savage for it so it's gonna be i think it's gonna be great yeah just that story is you can't even think of a story like that i can't believe that's a real yeah. story no it's wild and all this started from the bed yes <laughs> it's crazy dude wow okay more follow-ups when you spoke about sure. you went in to fix a script that didn't really know what it was trying to say so you kind of did a yeah. thematic pass in broad terms what does that kind of mean like what does that look like how do you fix up a script that say you don't know what you're trying to say here's how you find what you're trying to say that's a great question so i've created this thing called a script pyramid 
And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll walk you through it. Yeah. It starts with your first idea, which is the concept. The concept is you have this idea about what the story can be. So let's say you've got this idea that mankind is mining this crazy rare ore from this blue planet, from this planet with a bunch of blue people running around who got big old tails and they're crazy aliens. Does that sound familiar, right? right. So that's the Avatar movie. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's your concept. So one of the issues is that the concept, writers can get lost on that and they just start writing that. And then they get stuck and the story kind of goes all over the place because they don't know what they're writing. So the concept is the car, but the theme, what you're trying to say with the story, that's the engine. That's what starts driving the story. We have the concept of blue aliens and mankind uh, mining this ore. Well, thematically, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about mankind's abuse of nature and abuse of indigenous cultures and the taking of that land from people who already live there. So now we have a theme to work with. Now we know what to say. From there, you take a central character, the main character, and they become the living embodiment of your theme. So your theme plays through their journey. So you have Jake, who was the soldier. He was the guy who worked for the humans. And then he falls in love with the indigenous culture. He feels close to them. They give him purpose and meaning. He learns the connection to nature and to life. And that it's not all about machinery and technology. That there is more. That we're all connected. We're not separated by technology. So he's living that through the theme. And then you bring in supporting characters as the top of the pyramid who either identify with and support that theme or are the antithesis of that theme. So you'd have Sigourney Weaver's character who supports that theme of, of we're all one, we're all one life, and we shouldn't just topple indigenous tribes just to take these rare minerals for our technology. But then you have the opposite. You have the colonel who is all in on the human side, who is more than happy for scorched earth and to destroy what he views as his enemies to the point of obsession. So by having those supporting characters, again, with the theme, it sends the story in the right direction. Right. I've asked this question before, and it's kind of curious what the answer has been. Would you say that if you strip down, I guess you could say the concept of different stories, the themes that you'll find are usually pretty much the same. There's a few themes that are told in so many different kinds of concepts, just using your terminology. There is a book about the seven basic stories, but what I would say thematically what you're finding is the best themes used in films are one that bring a universal truth so if you write a theme about loss we've all experienced loss so if you have a theme in there that is about the loss of a loved one we've all had that somewhere or a coming of age where you're trying to find your own power of self we've all gone through that so like working in universal truths is really what you can do to find a theme with a wider umbrella. Right. When you have to put together the book, assumably you're talking about story structure and things like that, even though you're you're writing this, well, a nonfiction craft book, is there still your own techniques of story structure that you have to follow to put together the craft book? <laughs> I wanted to create a screenwriting book that didn't exist. That's what I wanted to do. And I pitched this book to 
every big publisher out there and like, oh, there's no market for this. And I'm like, you're wrong. There is a market for this. I am literally the market. If I want this book, then I know there are thousands of other screenwriters that want this book. My big issue with screenwriting is that there are hundreds of different books and they all specialize on one aspect of screenwriting. So you end up having an entire library full of books as some specialize on themes, some specialize on character, some specialize on specific genre. I wanted a book that was a reference guide of an all-encompassing approach to screenwriting, but written in a way that was easy to access. That was very important for me because most screenwriting textbooks are exceptionally boring. You fall asleep. They read like stereo instructions. And I wanted something that had life to it that you could feel like you're having a conversation with the author. So my voice is in the book and that was on purpose as a reference guide. So what I did is I used Strunk and White's Elements of Writing as a template for my book because that is such an easy approach to grammar. Okay. And as someone that struggles with dyslexia, I could appreciate what Strunk and White was. So if I could make the screenwriting reference guide version of that, I knew people would keep this thing on their desk and reference it whenever they needed it. And that literally is today. I have good friends that keep it on their desk. I had an Emmy Award winning director use the book when he films his last movie. So it's accessible. And I'm just honored that it was able to happen. Sometimes I read my book. <laughs> this is pretty good. That's good. Well, so how did you end up publishing it then? I self-published. As a screenwriter, we get told no 99% of the time. Yeah. So when these publishers are kept rejecting the book, I said, okay, I'm just going to make it a bestseller now. I don't need you. So I made sure I didn't use any kind of predatory distributors out there because that's a real thing. There's a lot of predatory publishers out there. So I self-published and I was able to get it to a point where it's on Amazon, but then it's also available everywhere. I mean, Target sells it online, Walmart sells it online. It's, it's pretty crazy where you can find it. Wow. So you did find a distributor for it then? To get it on yeah, I places. did. I yeah. found a distributor, but the distributor I use is not a predatory one. So it is just the cost of the book and shipping that you get charged. You don't get some out there that'll take, you know, 90% of your revenue. And then you're like, well, I sold some books, but I got a penny. I'm not, I don't have that issue. Well, that's good. Well, also, like you said, you want to be able to tell people that it's available in places and not just find the last store on the corner of Main Street and it should have it. Yeah, that is the big mistake a lot of published authors make is, oh, they'll just go on Amazon. And that's a, that's an issue, especially if you self-publish and you use and you use the ISBN code that Amazon assigns to you. Because if you do that, they essentially own your book at that point. Um, whereas you can go buy an ISBN right. number for your book and it costs like five bucks, costs nothing. But if you use the Amazon one, then you can't get it to a distributor who will send it everywhere else. Target's not going to buy a book from Amazon just to sell it to you. So if I only did that approach, I would only sell books on Amazon. And that would really limit my reach. And my goal for this book was to really become a key in someone's screenwriting journey. In order to do that, I had to get it out there as wide as I could.
Right. Most of the stuff you read today, if you do have time to read, are you usually just reading and studying screenplays or do you have time? No, I read like two or three books a week because I get a lot of authors who want to come on my podcast and I won't bring someone on my podcast unless I think their work is worthy of being shared with other writers. I'm very protective of the screenwriting community having kind of grown up on my own learning this stuff and meeting hucksters out there who are happy to take your money and pretend to be a mentor or people that are just want to rip you off. There's a whole secondary market of how to make money off the desperate screenwriter. So I'm yeah. very protective of my community because I don't want to present them with something that's going to put them on the wrong path. So if you want to come on my show, I'm going to read your book. So you'll send me your book. And if I think your book has some kind of value, I'll bring you on the show. If I don't, thanks for the book. Yeah. In regular publishing, it's the same thing. You have a lot of honest people and there's a lot of not honest people who are just... Yeah. They have writers beware of like, you know, yeah. the people out there were scamming. So focus on that for a second. So that could be any kind of book. That's You're not specific to only screenwriting books. I am specific to screenwriting and filmmaking. I don't really take fiction. I mean, I've taken a couple of fiction books, but... That was because those authors were screenwriters, so we talked about what it was like to write a, a novel as a screenwriter. But mm. in general, I, I don't take any like nonfiction. And I'll take some biographies of filmmakers, directors, or writers out there. I've had a couple of those just because they've had such amazing journeys. Um, I'll read their book and I'll bring them on and we'll talk about it. Would you say that definitely for the fiction you've read, but even for the nonfiction you've read, the structure that's there for screenwriting, does that even apply to book writing, would you say? What, or a lot of it does apply to that? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I wrote my book for screenwriting, but I've had authors write me and tell me they use it. I've had comic book artists write me and tell me they're using my structure. So yeah, I think structure is, is universal, whether people believe it or not. There's a beginning, middle, and end. And then little points in between those three moments that help keep the story being engaging and build to a conclusion. Do you use or believe in or go to exciting incident or things like that or you have a different... Yeah, structure comes from really James Campbell's monomyth. So he wrote this book called The Hero of a Thousand Faces and what he James Campbell had done is he had discovered through research that all religious stories and even oral history, fairy tales that are passed down amongst people, religions, tribes, they all have similar journeys in their archetypes, gods, central characters. And so he really broke that down. It was really fascinating. And so then Christopher Vogler took the monument and was able to tweak it into the writer's journey for screenwriting. And mm -hmm. from there, essentially what people have done, just picking chosen select pieces or kind of refined it and watered it down into even simpler plot points for structure. So you get different ones. And, and so that's what I've done. I've taken the monomyth and I've simplified it into nine steps that anybody can follow. Before I became a novelist, and I'm not the only one, there's a lot of writers who started from screenwriting. And for me, mm -hmm. the biggest difference was... 
I just needed more words. It wasn't necessarily in the creation of the story. It was just you need more words between the parts of the story. So, so much of it was similar. I don't know if that's better or worse because sometimes authors have to deal with their manuscripts get too long and then they have to deal with cutting yeah. it and it gets really hard. But for me, all my manuscripts usually start off too short. When I get a screenplay that comes in that is on the short page count, usually what I find out is that it's because it was all the central character's journey and they didn't work in any subplots. Mm -hmm. And subplots is really what fills out your story, both page count-wise and thematically. And that's something that I discovered, so I'm kind of known as the subplot guy. I mean, that's why the subtitle of my book is From Synopsis to Subplots, The Secrets of Screenwriting Revealed, because I've noticed that most people never really talk about subplots. I created a system where you can even see what subplot lands where, which no one has even done that before. And I show where subplots intermix with the main plots, which is, again, that's unique to the structure that I've provided. I don't even know if I've seen that before in regular. Yeah. Like, I haven't read every. Sort of reminds me of, I once spoke to a screenwriter. I always forget his name. He wrote, I think, the, like the Airbud film. And he said that it, for him... For people who are writing kid stories, don't forget that adults are still characters in the story. Don't just shoehorn them in there because, oh, they must have a parent. If the parents are there, they're also characters still. So you can't just 2D them just because they have to be there kind of thing. You want to fill out all of the characters. So you said the screenwriter for Air Bud? You know the Air Bud films about the golden retriever who plays basketball? Aaron Mendelson, Paul Tamasi, or Kevin DeCicio. Maybe Aaron so one of those listen. guys. Yeah, all of the characters need to be flushed out in your story. That is one thing that happens because you have to know who your character is in order for them to act appropriately. Characters are their actions in the story. And if you don't know who a character is, then you don't know what the proper action is for them to take. So what happens is you end up having a character kind of muttering around as the story unfolds around them. That's the last thing that you want. Right. It's kind of the opposite of what we do as people in that <laughs> the way someone behaves and we're like, oh, they're that kind of person because of their behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever worked with adaptations of books to films? I have. I've done some adaptations, and I gotta tell you, that is some of the hardest forms of screenwriting you can do out there, outside from writing television. Writing an adaptation is incredibly difficult. I got brought on to write an adaptation, essentially. I would say it would be like a dystopian, faith-based version of Game of Thrones. It's the closest way I could describe it. It had a ton of characters. It had a really great premise it took place in this dystopian future and I'm reading this thing and they're like, okay, we want you to make this a movie. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of work. One of the first things was like, how do I reduce this? What is the story about? What is the story trying to say? That's essential. And how do I reduce the characters in this and make it so that it's doable? And so I, I did that and it really came out great. Because here's the thing, you have so many fans, everyone wants to yeah. see the adaptation, and then inevitably they're like, well, the adaptation was not good enough. Yeah. I hate that, because that person does not understand the differences between medias. And that's right. not their fault. They know what they know. They yeah. know the book. And they say, oh, well, it wasn't faithful to the book. But that's impossible. It's like trying to make a pear taste like an orange. They're both fruits. But they're different. Right. And so when you have to make a huge adaptation of something that is a book, you are putting it in an entirely different medium. You cannot have a faithful adaptation of a book because it will be trash. <laughs> <laughs> the only way to explain it. 
I guess that goes to, you've sort of explained this, that you got to boil the story down, figure out what it's saying, and then figure out then, okay, now how can I say this on screen, kind of, with the characters and the setting I've been given. Exactly. Well, most and, of them. And you add on the stress of, oh, well, I have to have fan service. I have to make sure that this character is in there and that the the fans will love this character I, I add in. And that is very risky. It's because you can do fan service and add that character, but if that character doesn't do anything for the story, it's garbage. So everything has to have meaning. When I write a script, I labor over every line. Every line. Every line of dialogue, every line of action. It's not like I just whip out 90 pages and I say, hey, you know, 60% of it's good. No, I sit down and if it isn't great, I cut it or I rework that until it's great. I will have nights where I can't sleep because my brain is stuck on a scene. Not even the entire scene, part of the scene. Sometimes a line in the scene or a particular part of dialogue. That is the type of effort that you put into a screenplay in order to have something come out that is special. Right. Just quickly, just because you touched on dialogue for a second, what's one thing, assuming or knowing this will be one of many things, or it could be one of many things, what's one thing you'd say is important for people to remember about dialogue? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that, either they just can't get the words out or they just end up writing these like too many words. Dialogue has to be real. Both characters come into a scene with an objective. That's what you have to remember. Scenes don't just happen to happen or to explain to the audience what's going on. That's not what the purpose of a scene. The scene happens to further the plot, to further the story. If a scene isn't doing that, we cut the scene. When you have characters come into a scene, they come in with an objective. I want this. The other person wants that. And it is experienced through the dialogue. Okay, I'm going to hit you with the best type of subtext. I learned this young. I was at a restaurant with my dad. We just had a full meal. And my dad says, you want some pie? No, I don't want any pie. You sure? That key lime looks good. No, I don't want any pie, Dad. Okay. And we left. And he was so pissed at me. And why? Why was he mad at me? I don't know. He asked me for pie and didn't want any. Well, he wanted pie. So let's break that down into a scene. We're both sitting down. We're eating. It's quiet. His goal is for him to get pie. My goal is to go home and play a video game. He wants pie. I don't want pie because that's going to take long. We're going to be here longer. This is the subtext of the scene. We're going to be here longer. I want to go home and play a video game. I don't want any pie. Are you sure you don't want pie? Looks at, he's pressing upon me again. No, I don't want it. So the subtext is there's now there's tension. He wants something I don't. And then the end of the scene is the reveal of his anger because he didn't get pie because he wanted it. So there's the subtext there. So really the key to dialogue is building in the subtext of what that person secretly wants versus what they are actually saying. Uh-huh. It's not exactly the same, but it did remind me a little bit of some of the things that you were talking about, story structure in general. What is the theme? What are you trying to get at? <laughs> what are you trying yeah, to say? Exactly. If he just says, I want pie, bring me pie. You bring him pie and he eats pie and I sit there. There's no conflict. There's right. no interest. There's no intrigue. Yeah, so you bury it. Very good. So now here's the only thing is that, and this maybe just tied to adaptation, because with a screenplay, you kind of have the advantage of the visual. But I guess when you're writing, yes. when you're writing in fiction, you have to spell out the visual or you have to write out the visual in some sort of way. That's also going to kind of get lost, I guess, in the, uh, in that adaptation. As a novelist, you have a privilege that a screenwriter doesn't. As a novelist, you get to go inside the mind of your central character or your point of view character. 
we can't do that, screenwriters. So these books are written from the perspective of the character. We get to hear their inner thoughts. We get to hear their inner conflict. We get to hear through their their thoughts and their mind. We don't get that in screenwriting. So the internal conflict of a character is displayed through the subtext of their dialogue because we can't be in their mind on screen. So that's why it's a different medium. So when somebody says, oh, it wasn't a true adaptation of book, Yes, because I don't think anybody would want to watch a movie where we're just watching people's thoughts all day. <laughs> it wouldn't be very exciting, maybe. And it also just could probably also become like a little preachy or just all these monologues. Well, they tried it in the older version of Dune. They tried it with a lot of voiceover and it just came off as weird. Right. I did finally come, I know I'm kind of sitting on the adaptation a little bit, but I did finally come to the point of let it go. Let the adaptation just be the adaptation. It's not the same. It's different people working on it. It is. It's just different. It's a a different story. Robert McKee says, I might be paraphrasing here, but he says, when you do an adaptation, you adapt the spirit of the story. Right. And really, I think that says it quite well. Right. And also one advantage is that if the book is a first person, a screenplay like you're saying is not. You can add in scenes that we wouldn't have necessarily been able to see in the book because the first person wouldn't have seen it, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I remember screenwriting is one of the most difficult literary arts out there because it's a visual medium done through the written word, right? right? So it's one degree removed from what you're doing. That's exceptionally difficult to do. It's funny how so much can be the same, but so much can be different. Well, very good. I'm sure there's way more on this. We're going to wrap up anyways. Now I get to be up tonight thinking about all this stuff. (laughs) Wrapping up, we always ask the kind of this fill in the blank of choosing one. I really like it when writers, directors, film stories, whatever, anything that's story related. I really like it when it does X. I really don't like when X. So how do you fill in the blank for that? I really like when a movie or a film makes me think about it two or three days later. I really don't like when a movie uses violence or action to cover up a weak plot. One second. Isn't that like every action flick? Not every. (laughs) You know John Wick is a solid action film with a lot of character. I guess that's why it's so popular. Yeah, no, it really is. It is quite good. The, The first one was impressive how much character he had in an action film. Very good. Thanks. More to think about now. We love to think, hooray! (laughs) Well, Gary, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure as well. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast featuring author, screenwriter, podcaster, Jeffrey D. Calhoun. To find out more about Jeffrey and his work, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word Podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word Podcast or check us out at eltanabound.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time.